So here we go. Uh, we're, Christmas is quickly approaching. I, I, I honestly wasn't really feeling it. Uh, just wasn't into the mood of it, you know, the festivities of it. Uh, in many ways, even though we've celebrated uh, with some family, uh, celebrated Christmas already, had uh, meals together, things like that, I just wasn't really feeling it. And until yesterday, I was, uh, Faith and Nathan had the idea to go caroling. We went caroling around the neighborhood, and, and you never know what to expect, right? You just don't know. And so we knocked on a couple of doors, and, and, and the first couple of doors, nobody answered. And it's probably a good thing because it gave us a chance to practice and kind of get past nerves of it and all of that. But then everyone who, who answered the door after that, they smiled, they were appreciative, uh, and it was just, it was a good time. And as I, so I'm thankful for it, and it's helped me kind of just get into the mood of celebrating Christmas. As we do that here as a church, we don't just look to the day or look back on the birth of Christ. As important as that is, as vital as that is to us, the the virgin birth that gave way to his perfect life, that gave way to his sacrificial death, that gave way to his victorious resurrection, that gave way to his ascension into heaven and his promise to come again, there's a reality that 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 birth, that first advent, if you will, which just means his first arrival, is, a ser- is part of a series of events. In fact, if you have his first arrival without his promise of coming again, his second advent or his second arrival, well, what are we doing, right? I mean, if there's no promise of him returning, if there's nothing to look forward to, and all we can ever do is look back, then, then is, is his promise for today? And it is. And so we, we take time every year to focus in on, to celebrate, not just Christmas, uh, but Advent with, with the view of looking back, purposefully preparing us to, to, to look forward every day, not, not just in some, uh, you know, not some trite way, not, not celebrating Christmas every day, uh, every day walking in the light of the reality that Christ is coming again, that one day his light will shine and there will be no need for the sun. And today we're looking at that uh, from a passage in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 59 is where we're going to start, verses 14. uh, And we'll actually work all the way through to chapter 60, verse 22. Uh, I found out in the first service, I I got excited, I talked too much, I wasn't able to hit all the verses in chapter 60. And so I'm just going to tell you, we probably won't read them all, uh, but there will be some some pertinent passages that I'll highlight and uh, point out to you um, because they're, they're vital to this reality. Um, and so as we do this, I just want to, want to prepare you because it is a long section of scripture. I want you to have the outline, that just the idea already in your head. So these are the things we're going to see as we work through this passage. We're going to see the darkness of our sin, the salvation that God provides, the promise that God keeps, and the life God enables. The darkness of our sin, the salvation God provides, the promise God keeps, and the life God enables. And we're going to look at that. We're going to walk through that outline with one main point in view. Only the light of our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, can dispel the darkness of our sin-filled hearts so we can live forever in his glory. Only the light of our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, can dispel the darkness of our sin-filled hearts so we can live forever in his glory. Jesus is at the heart of God's plan to save us from darkness. He is the central figure. It's through him that we're enabled to live in this life. It's through him that we have the power, the ability. And, and so that's what we're going to see uh, today in this text. And, and rather than take my word for it, uh, as always, we will look to God's word because it's the word that works. So beginning in verse, chapter 59, verse 14, the word says this. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away, for truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. 
Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. So here's the first part of our outline, the first piece of information that we're going to walk through, that we're going to look at, we're going to see uh, revealed in the Scriptures, the darkness of our sin. It is much darker than we, we like to admit. It's much darker than we even often realize. Isaiah gives us five things that we, can, that we can kind of pull out of this passage to help us see it. First, he says that, there is no, that, that justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. What he's alluding to is that there's first no righteousness. There's no moral practice. He's writing this, and remember, he's writing this to God's chosen people. He's writing this to the Israelites. So this is a people who had the law, they had the patriarchs, they had the prophets, they had, they, had, uh, they had all the history, they had all the revelation, they had all the experience with God, they had seen God in their history do miraculous and powerful works, and yet there was no righteousness, there was no moral practice. Even their religious effort was empty, it was a sham, it was a veneer with no substance underneath of it. It was nothing. It was detestable to God. They're waking up and going to, to synagogue on Sabbath. It was detestable to him. It was not righteous. It was as evil and wicked as a, a flat-out rejection of him. There's no moral practice, he says. There's no justice, he points out. No justice. Not only is there no moral practice, there is no moral principle that would give way to moral practice. So the idea here is, is that the that the foundation of moral practice or religious uh, righteous acts, there's nothing underneath it. There's nothing de- in, the, in the depths of a person's heart. There's nothing in them that would give way to moral practice. There is no justice. There is no righteousness. And the reason that they are missing is because there is no truth. He says it. Truth is lacking. Truth has stumbled in the public squares. The world at this point in time, at this, at this stage, the world and Israel, even Israel, has, has fallen to the darkness of deceit of sin. And they have dismissed and displaced and rejected truth. There is no truth. And because there is no truth, they cannot form moral principle. And because they cannot form moral principle, they cannot act in moral practice. And it gets really bad. Because anyone who would, he says, anyone who would seek to turn from evil becomes prey. They become, they become one who's seen as weak and, and, and begins to be taken advantage of. The, the one who might begin to seek to turn from evil becomes the, 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 the way, the, the, the consuming passions of those who are evil. They, they consume them. I mean, think about this. To do the right thing in, in this day, in this, in this time, was to put yourself in, at risk, to put yourself in danger, to stand for truth, to stand for righteousness, to stand for, for moral practice and moral principle, to stand in light of God's truth was to put you at risk. There is none. No righteousness, no justice, no truth. Anyone who turns from evil becomes prey. And it gets even worse. 
There is no one that can do anything about it. He looks and they are helpless. They cannot change it if they wanted to. They could not. They have no power. They have no capacity, no capability. They have no righteousness to bring righteousness in. They have no power to, 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 to overcome those who would make them pray. They are helpless. This is the world in which Isaiah writes to. And he might as well be writing to us. Nothing has changed about the darkness that our sin creates. Because of our sin, the whole of the created order has been thrust into darkness. The peace and the harmony that existed before Adam and Eve's rebellion in sin. It is no more. The the creation that we were to, to subdue and rule over, that mankind was to rule over and subdue, the creation now simply rebels against us. As I'm studying this passage, as I was considering the words and reading them and, and beginning to read commentary and digging at the original language, I, I come across a, 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 an article written by uh, Trevin Wax and it came out on the Gospel Coalition, written for, a, for, for this season, for this Christmas season, but it speaks to the same issue. He writes this, it's Christmas time. So we're singing these days about peace on earth, joining our voices with the angels who appeared to the shepherds. But let's face it, 2017 has been a hard year for peace on earth. We've seen wars and rumors of wars. We've watched earthquakes flatten towns, hurricanes destroy islands, fires consume neighborhoods, and floodwaters engulf a city. Last month brought brought news of a mass killing that took more than half of the people gathered for worship at First Baptist Church of Sutherland Springs, Texas. The bad news is everywhere. Terrorist attacks, nuclear threats, corruption in Washington, racial tensions, sexual assault and harassment and predation coming to light in Hollywood, in Washington, D.C. And Lord have mercy in the church of Jesus Christ. It's easy to look at the state of our world and say peace on earth sounds so far away. There's a reason I haven't felt like celebrating Christmas. It's a dark place we live in. He goes on, for some personal peace has been ruptured by a health crisis or the loss of a loved one or the slow and steady breaking down of a relationship. Life has left you disoriented and confused. Confused. We cannot smother the evil of the world with holiday sentimentality. Listen, Christmas, the celebration of Christmas isn't going to end the reality of the darkness that we reside in. We might might be able to displace it for just a moment. But as soon as the holiday is over, as soon as as January uh, 2 rolls around and the holidays end, it all comes flooding back. He says, we cannot smother the evil of the world with holiday sentimentality, but neither can we deal with evil by saying, here's why God is allowing all this to happen, as if God's ways are always obvious and clear, as if we can read his mind. No, God can read our minds. We can't read his. 
And if you have, made, if you have ready-made, easy-to-understand explanations for why God doesn't pre- prevent a maniac from slaughtering half a church, please keep it to yourself. Let's not offer pious platitudes and empty religious phrases or out-of-context Bible verses to explain away suffering that only makes it worse. He ends up pointing out that, that although this is where we live in the depths of this darkness, surrounded by darkness, pray for those who would do evil, he makes the point that we can still sing the songs of the season. That we can sing of the light of Christ that has come, the joy to the world that has come in Christ, the peace on earth that comes with Christ. Because they point to Christ. You know, we may not be able to give all the answers. We may be helpless to come up with, with any, any, any answer to, to the problem. But God isn't. God isn't. In fact, in the, in the whole flow of this thing, the interesting thing to me about this article is that as he, as he talks about the darkness, he then turns and points us directly at the beauty and majesty of the coming of Christ. And so a holiday and the trappings that come with the holiday, they may not, they may not serve us well. They may not rid us of darkness, but Christ can. He calls us to look to Jesus. And what's, what's interesting to me is that that is exactly what Isaiah tells us to look to. In fact, if you see it, I mean, I, I know that, that, that I have just painted a bleak and dark picture. You probably don't feel like celebrating Christmas anymore either, right? But even in these verses, there is hope. Look at it again. Let me point you back to verse 15. The Lord saw. The Lord sees. He is displeased. He is not satisfied with what's going on. He is not going to sit back and do nothing. He sees that we are helpless in this place. He sees that there's nothing we can do. He sees that, the, that, 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 that we have no capacity or capability. And he doesn't sit back and do nothing. But in the midst of our circumstance, he works. You see, the darkness of our sin is real. But God has determined to provide salvation. Let's pick it up again. This is the second part of our outline. The salvation God provides. Pick it back up in verse 16. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. You see, he's speaking of God's power and God's righteousness. Where there was none in his people, God brings it. He saw that there was no man, and he wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on on righteousness as a breastplate and and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun for he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives and a redeemer. Do you feel the change? 
and a redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. Where we couldn't act, where we were incapable of acting, God has acted. This is divine action. Isaiah opens this this divine action with a picture of God acting in his own righteousness and by his own power, dressing as a warrior, a divine warrior going to fight his enemies. But he doesn't talk about enemies in the sense that it's Assyrians or Babylonians or Canaanites. God has gone to war against sin and the people who will not turn from it. God God has has determined that he will be the warrior that goes to battle against the injustice and the lack of righteousness. He says there is wrath and repayment for those who stand against him. They will get exactly what their sin deserves. He says, but for those who repent, this divine warrior serves as a divine redeemer. Think about this. If you were here last week, you remember back in Isaiah 8, uh, chapters 8 and 9, as we looked at this, that that God didn't change. God's nature didn't change. He was always holy. He was always righteous. He was always just. He was always loving. He was always gracious. He was always merciful. And he was either a trap and snare to those who would not fear him, or he was a sanctuary to everyone who feared him. God did not change, but how he interacted with people depended on how they responded to him. And if they responded in fear, he was their sanctuary. He was their place of safety, their place of peace. But if they would not fear him, he was a trap and a snare to him, one who they would not be able to escape. The same thing is happening in this passage. God does not change. He will always be holy. He will always be righteous. He will always be just. He will always be the divine warrior that does battle against the sin and the the people who live in sin. People who continue to reject him, continue to run from him, continue to seek to live in the darkness. He will do battle against them. There's another picture from Isaiah 8 and 9. is this picture of coming peace. Right? The, the time when peace will reign, where peace on earth is real and, 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 uh, and he has come, the prince of peace. Before he's the prince of peace, he is the divine warrior that goes to battle against the darkness of sin. For any who would reject him and would not repent. But for any who repent, this divine warrior serves as their divine redeemer. The one who would do battle against them as they repent becomes the one who actually brings them up out of their sin, brings them up out of the darkness, brings them up out of their slavery and bondage. And remember, he's writing to a people, his people, the Israelite people. He's writing and speaking directly first and foremost to them. It certainly has implications for us, but, but you have to see this. Even in and among his people, even in and among Israel, not all of them would be saved. J. Alec uh, Mautier says this uh, in his commentary on this passage, not all who claim to be of Zion will be saved in Zion. Only the penitence. The Lord is as holy in redemption as in, in vengeance. 
The Lord is as holy in redemption as in vengeance. He remains holy. What will we do with him? How will we respond to him? Will we see our helplessness? Will we recognize the darkness? Will we see him dressing for war and going out against his enemy? And will we repent? Or will we stand in opposition to him? For all the repentant, they could take heart because what they couldn't do for themselves, God would do on their behalf. He dressed himself as the divine warrior, that he might be the divine redeemer. And as difficult and as fearful as it might be to consider him in his holiness standing against us, the view that the divine warrior is the divine redeemer is the central focus of this passage, and I don't want you to miss the beauty of it. This is not meant to just heap on you fear and make you scared and get you to behave in some certain way. It's to see the holiness, the beauty, and the majesty, and the power of this God who's determined to act in the midst of our helplessness. John Oswalt in the New International Commentary writes these words, No matter how fearsome his wrath against sin, no matter how terrified those who choose to remain in sin should be, Still, it is the patient compassion of a God who longs to forgive that should capture our attention as it did that of the ancient Israelites. It is not remarkable that God should be incensed at the corruption of his purposes for creation. What is remarkable is that he should persevere in compassion towards those who have become corrupt. You've heard it said before, likely, that, that we should quit asking the question, why do bad things happen? Look around. There's, there's reasons why bad things happen. We live and dwell in a land of darkness. We've just walked through an article that kind of points some of these things out directly. We've walked through a passage that demonstrates there's no justice, no, no, no righteousness, no truth. No, people who strive for those things become prey. We're a people who are helpless. There's no, no, no wonder that bad things happen. We shouldn't be surprised that God is angry. We should be surprised that God is still compassionate towards those who have sinned and rebelled against him. We shouldn't be surprised that God would be frustrated and incensed and angered because we have abused one another in the world he created and rejected him in his position. We should be surprised that God did something to change our state and to give us something different to look forward to. We should be surprised that God determined that there would be a redeemer for Zion. And this was no passing fancy. This was no, no momentary lack of judgment. This is God's promise. Is the promise he has determined to keep. He's the one that says that there will be a redeemer for Zion. He is the one that makes that decree. He is the one that determines it and does it by his power and, and, and his righteousness. But this promise that God keeps goes further. And, and as we come to this, uh, back in verse 21, we begin to see just how specific and how special this promise really is. 
It says in verse 21, as for me, this is my covenant with them. As for me, that's God. This is my covenant. That's his agreement. That's his promise with them. That's the people. So back in verse 20, he's talking about the Redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who turn from transgression. So to all the promise or to all the repentant people in Israel, this is God's promise to them. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. This is the promise that God has determined to keep forever, not for one generation, not for this generation, but the one that follows that generation and the one that follows that generation and the one that follows that generation this time forth and forevermore. This is God's eternal promise. But look, it goes deeper. It's not just a promise made to these people in Israel. Let me, let me show you something. We don't see it immediately in our, in our use of language and in our translations. I want, you, I want to point this out to you because I want you to see this. So in verse 20, he's speaking to Israel and, and promises a redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. That's his declaration. As for me, God This is my covenant with them. He's speaking about a plural people. Speaking to, uh, or or saying, I promised, made this promise to them. And then he begins to speak in masculine singular. My spirit that is upon you. Now for us, you is just the word you. It doesn't doesn't carry any any clues to, to who he's speaking to. Like I can be talking to a man and say you, and I can be talking to a woman and use the same word you. In Hebrew, you cannot do that. He's speaking in masculine singular here. He says, my spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord from this time forth and forever more. And so some people want to make this saying God's speaking to Israel. But then in the very next verse, now remember the very next verse, chapter 60, verse 1, it's not separated in chapters the, the, the way that we see it. In the very next verse, he goes from singular masculine to singular feminine to speak of God's people. Arise, shine for your light, your light, not, not, not the same word, not the same tense as, as, the, as the previous you and your. So, so, so what's happening here? I mean, we, you have to see this. You have to understand to see how, how powerful it is. What's happening here is that this covenant God's made with the Israelites, with the people who were repentant in Zion, he's speaking to his son. His covenant with them, the, the, the plural, turns and he begins to have this conversation with this mysterious figure that, that, that over the course of, of, of Isaiah we begin to see as, this, as, as the, servant, the, the, ser, the servant of the Lord who breaking it out in further context demonstrates us to, to be the, the son of God. And, and, and the reality is what's happening here is Isaiah, in, in, inspired by God and under the prophet, prophetic utterances of God, gives us insight into a conversation between God the Father, my spirit that is upon you, God the Son, and my words, God's words that I have put in your mouth, God the Son's mouth, shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring. Any that follow Christ. And so here's, here, here's the, here, let me just say it as, hopefully as clearly and, and basically as I possibly can. Through Jesus... 
Because of Jesus, we will enjoy, we will be blessed by God's word and God's spirit. In the same way that God in this passage is saying, I've promised them that my word will never leave you, son. My word, my spirit will never leave you, son. I am eternally binding my word and my spirit to you, son. It will never leave them. Because those who are born out of you, those who are born out of those who are born out of you, will also enjoy and be blessed by this spirit and this word. Through Jesus, we enjoy both the spirit and word of God. And we desperately need both. But it's only because God has promised his son on behalf of his people. Ray Ortland's commentary, he points out here that, that how important it is that we get both the spirit and the word. He says, without the spirit, we get dry. Without the, without the word, we get weird. So without the spirit, we're just a bunch of frozen chosen. Like we don't even want to pray out loud. Like, so, so we're sitting here at the, at, at the beginning and, and we're doing a commissioning. And without the spirit in there, nobody would be want to, want to, want to pray out loud. Nobody wants to, to exercise or express themselves in any way. No, there would just be this dryness. But without the word, well, you've, you, you've certainly been in circles or, or known people who have denied the truth and just gone for the experience. Without the spirit, we get dry. Without the word, we get reared. Through Jesus, we are given both the word and spirit. And because of Jesus, we will never be without them again. So, He helps us in our helplessness. He brings us truth where we are lacking. He provides righteousness and justice because we had none. Now, as we turn from evil, as we walk in repentance and become prey to those who remain in evil and darkness, he's not just our divine redeemer. He is our divine warrior fighting against his enemy and ours. This is the only chance we have. This is the only opportunity for salvation. This is the only answer to the darkness that our sin has dealt out. There is no other promise. There is no other path. There is no other salvation. This is it. Only this, only the light of our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, can dispel the darkness of our sin-filled hearts so we can live forever in his glory. Only through Jesus and the promise that God intends to keep toward his Son for his people gives us any hope of standing, any hope of lasting. But it's this gospel light that shines on us and changes everything. It's this gospel light, this gospel revelation that changes everything. Not for some time in the distant future. Not for some time that, oh, it'll be there when I need it. It changes everything right now. You see, this gospel, this promise that God intends to keep, this 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 promise that God will keep gives way to a life that he enables. A life that can be lived in the light of his truth. A life that can be lived in the light of his righteousness and his justice. A life that can be lived in the light of his powerful help. A life that can be lived in the light of his protection and provision. Even now, even now as we're surrounded still by darkness, It's his gospel light that enables this gospel life. Let me just show you. 
Again, I can't read all these verses, but beginning in chapter 60, verse 1, he says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. You can already begin to feel the sense and the change of tone, right? Like this was dark and it was heavy. And there was promise of something, but now he's bringing us to this place. He's like saying, Arise and shine, the light has come. The beauty and the majesty of the dawn has peaked over the horizon. Arise, shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. Do you see the blessing that it is for his people, for the repentant people who would turn from sin? His light shines on you. His glory is seen on you. I love the way that one commentator puts it. He says, if the previous chapter was like a long, dark tunnel, this is the light at the end of it. It's the light of Christ shining on his people and not just commanding us to arise, but enabling us to arise. He enables us to stand. He gives us a chance to stand. He gives us a place to stand. He gives us power to stand. We cannot arise without him. In the light of our Redeemer, we're made able to arise and to stand firm while dwelling in the midst of darkness. The same was true for these Israelites who would repent and turn toward God. His light would shine, and the same stands true for you and me today. Even now, surrounded by the darkness, even now, able to turn on the news at any moment and see the depths of darkness that pervasive across our state and our nation, our city. Right now, living in a city that carries a form of religion is really not different than these Israelites of veneer, of righteousness. A lacking of truth that says if you work hard enough, you will begin to shine. You will be able to polish yourself up so that you will reflect God's light. You will be able to do all that you need to do on your own. Just do the right things. Be a good person. But you see, that's not what he says here. Arise, for your light has come. The light must shine on us to make us able to shine. To make us able to arise. His glory shines on us. His glory is seen on us. His light is seen on us. All we can do is reflect it. We live in a city that on one hand has a form of religion that's as dark as the most evil acts that we can dream up. And on the other hand, on the other end of that spectrum, we live in a city that is rejecting these rules and this this, this self-righteous religion. And they are rejecting it and they are beginning to rebel against it. And we are seeing the fruit of that as our city fights against itself. And here we stand. A people who have an opportunity not to shine for ourselves. But people who stand and have the opportunity to see the light of God and repent. That it will enable us to stand up and stand firm. In the depths of this darkness. But this standing, it's not just a benefit to us. 
Although it is, I mean, it's going to enable us to endure. This, this is a promise that brings us and carries us all the way to the point of his coming, the point of all the way to his return. Now, from this time forward and forevermore, this is a promise that leads to all time. This is an eternal promise, a, a, a command that he's enabling us to, to live out every day from here on out. But it's not just about making us strong. It's about making his glory known. In the light of our Redeemer, we are made able to shine so that the nations are drawn to his glory. He says, nations, pick it back up in verse 3, nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. You see how the light, it's it's, it's like a a magnet, like like, like a moth being drawn to the light. The nations shall come to your light, the kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes, he says. All around, see, they gathered together, they come to you. It's so beautiful, so, 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 so uh, entrent- or, 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 or detailed. The intricacies of the passage, he says, lift your eyes all around and see, drawing from the reality that God has seen. Back in chapter 40, or 59, he says, the Lord has seen. The Lord sees. And now he's telling us in the light that is provided by God, lift your eyes and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar. Your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because of the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nation shall come to you. You see, this shining, this, this radiance that, that, that pours off of us in response to the light of God shining upon us, it does a couple of things. First, it brings condemnation. It reveals the reality of the darkness that people live in. I mean, consider what he calls his people to. Our lives should be distinctly different. They should not look the same as those in the world. They should not look the same as those who would reject and rebel and continue to to hide in the darkness. Our lives should be distinctly different. They should be holy. And the radiance comes from the light that shines on us. But allows us to shine. It allows us to to demonstrate something different. It doesn't look the same. Our lives should not just be the same of those self-righteous, moralistic people who would would walk around with their their chins lifted and their noses raised and, and, and looking down at people because they aren't measuring up to their own standards. There should be a light off of us. But as it shines into the darkness, as it shines into the darkness of religion and it shines into the darkness of irreligion, it should should bring a level of conviction and ultimately condemnation for any who would continue to reject him. But that's not the point that Isaiah makes here, is it? He wants us to see how it draws God's people how his glory among his people becomes the attractive force that draws his people from the nations to him. This has always been God's plan. He always intended to reveal the light of Jesus, his perfect life, his sacrificial death, his victorious resurrection. He always intended to reveal the glory of his son through the radiance of his people. 
Even in Ephesians 3, this is a, a passage that, that Paul highlights as, as he's talking about. He, he intends, it's always been his sovereign plan to use the church to make his glory known, not just in the earth, but in the heavenly realms. This is the position we hold as God's people, a people who are called to rise, to stand in the face of darkness, and to shine that he might use us to draw his people from among the nations. So that, that every socioeconomic division, every ethnicity, every race, every, every, every stage of, of economic um, income, uh, everyone, it will be represented. It will be drawn to him by the light of Christ shining off his people. Around here we like to say it in this way. Because of the gospel light, because of the gospel, we worship in life and seek to lead others to worship in life. We seek to worship and lead others to worship Jesus because that is what he has enabled us to do. This is the life he enables. He enables us to arise and he enables us to shine that through us people are drawn to him. So here we are living in a city filled with darkness. And we're not going to throw off the tools. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not saying that we shouldn't use the tools he's given us to use. We're going to try to do things as professionally and, 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 and well as we can. We're going to try to keep our building nice so that people won't come in and think that it doesn't matter to us. We're going to seek to make sure that our systems function. We're going to seek to make, our, make, make sure that, that our programs are, are structured well and that we have leaders that have our character, but, but, but not just for the sake of gaining a name for ourselves. I wonder if when people walk in our doors and mingle amongst our people, whether it be here or in our community somewhere, I wonder, is it God's glory that they experience by the radiance of his light shining off of them? Or is it indistinguishable in the midst of the darkness? My prayer for us is that we be a people known because his radiance reflects off of us and that people see 